It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's episode centers around anxiety, insecurity, and how to feel more calm. One of the top sources of stress is money, so we'd like to introduce you to our sponsor, Simply Codes. This online tool helps you easily save money on the things you need and the things that you want in life. The Simply Codes browser extension and iOS app shows you verified deals at your favorite online stores. Check it out at simplycodes.com slash wellevator. That's simplycodes.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Our guest today is someone that we've mentioned and actually dedicated some previous episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable to in the past. You may recognize the name if you are an avid listener of Dr. Kathleen Smith. It's someone that Whitney and I have been literally chomping at the bit to have on the podcast. We're so excited to have her today. And recently, I was gifted a copy of her book, Everything Isn't Terrible, Conquer Your Insecurities, Interrupt Your Anxiety, and Finally Calm Down. And I have to admit (laughs) that I have been feeling anxiety all morning for this episode because as I've been going through the book and I have been reading through these chapters and how many different subjects and areas of life that are covered from dating to family to relationships to religion to social media. I could go on and on and on about how diverse and myriad the subject matter in this book is. But I started feeling anxious because I realized how resonant so many subjects in this book were and thought, my God, where do I even start? Because as I was saying to you, Kathleen, before we started this episode, I had so many head nod moments of like, oh my God, yes. That's how I feel. This is someone who's putting words to how I feel. And doing it in a way that's not overtly clinical or cold. I just feel like your book is presenting anxiety and mental health in a way that is so real and so approachable. You you write it in such a conversational way, and it it has so many relatable stories. So I don't know that I have a specific jump off point other than I've been feeling really freaking anxious to start this episode. Because it feels like I'm not quite sure where to start. So I think just thanking you for writing this in a way that has been so resonant for me and sharing these stories that are so relatable has at at once made me feel seen and acknowledged without us even meeting, but again, has also made me be like, I don't know what to bring up first. So I guess just welcome and thank you for being here and fulfilling a dream for me and Whitney of finally having you on the podcast. Well, thank you both so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this stuff in, in a non-clinical way with you, as you said. I think the very first thing that jumped out at me, and first of all, just Whitney introducing me to your work and, and finally getting your book was, wow, coming to terms with how I have been looking at my anxiety and my clinical depression, my suicidal ideation, a lot of the things that we have mentioned often on the podcast and making it out to be like an enemy. And one thing that you had this position, this kind of perspective in the book that I was like, oh, that's interesting, was when you said, 
make anxiety your friend and how society treats anxiety like a tumor. And I thought, oh my God, I've, I have been doing that in my life. I have been trying to cut it out, shrink it, burn it, obliterate it, destroy it, act like it's this thing that I need to conquer and defeat. You know, And I've been using phrases in the past, like trying to conquer my depression, trying to defeat anxiety, kind of these violent, combative terms around my mental health issues. And you positioning it in this way has been so interesting because I realized that I've been kind of, I've been kind of activating this alarm system in my body by treating it in that combative way. And it's just been a really interesting way to reframe my relationship to my mental health issues instead of feeling like I have to fight them all the time. We tend to want to categorize things as healthy or unhealthy as humans. We want to put them in those separate boxes. <laughs> And I think that that can be so unhelpful because so much of what we do or what our anxiety has us do is just human, you know? So I think recognizing um, that anxiety is useful, that it fails us in some ways, that we're too sensitive sometimes and not sensitive enough in others. I don't think talking about a lot of mental health stuff as healthy or unhealthy is useful because it tends to lead to shaming yourself or feeling frustrated when you can't make a change, you know? And so, you know, I talk about this in the book, but I tend to think of it as what's automatic for me as a human, which is very natural and part of our evolutionary heritage. (laughs) And when does that fail me? When is it not useful? When do I want to function in a different way? And what ideas do I have about that? And I think approaching it from that perspective is so much kinder. And I think it makes it easier to change when you recognize that you do what you do for a pretty good reason. I want to piggyback on what Jason was saying about your approach with this, and especially because in one of our recent episodes, we talked a lot about shame, which is a topic that is similar to how Jason was saying, like he feels anxious about talking about anxiety sometimes. Like, I don't know if I feel shame about talking about shame, but it definitely like brings up a lot for me so I can completely relate. And what I find so wonderful about your teaching style, which, you know, I consider it teaching through your writing and, and through your phenomenal newsletter is that you break it down into just like a simple perspective. So I'm looking at one of your newsletters, for example, and it was 20 ways you had an incredibly anxious 2020. And I love these lists, Kathleen. This is what we've covered in previous episodes of the show, because when you go through them, you can really start to reflect on how you might have experienced anxiety or anxious feelings. And then I love how you pivot into some ideas for kind of moving through that. And I, it's just so incredibly helpful. And I'm trying to think because there was a couple in, in a recent episode we brought up. And I was like, gosh, when Kathleen comes on the show, I want to ask her about this because some weren't fully making sense. So as we're speaking, I'm going to go back and try to figure out what those were. Jason, can you dive in? <laughs> oh, yes. I'm so sorry. I was actually, I got sucked into a part of the book, Kathleen. It's so funny. I, it's so, <laughs> I have to laugh at myself because I was like, okay, which page do I want to pull from next? And then I literally started to dive into a section where you're talking about love. And I just feel like there's so much fear around speaking one's truth in life. I mean, one thing that I think I struggle with still in this role of being a people pleaser that I'm, I'm really trying to get myself out of because I've labeled it as a bad thing. Here I am again, like, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't be a people pleaser. I've really started to look at some of the components of why I feel so reticent to speak my truth and how that's affected my relationships in so many ways. 
And I think that what it's come down to, which you so brilliantly cover in your work is sort of this future projection, right? Is like, my thoughts go to this idea of, well, if you speak your truth, this person's not going to be able to handle it. And then this relationship's going to end or the contract's going to be over or this, your business partner is not going to understand. And I find myself observing my brain trying to protect myself from potentially horrible future outcomes that don't exist yet, right? It's like, it's like being stuck in this fight or flight thing where there's no actual saber-toothed tiger. But you know, maybe the saber-toothed tigers in the La Brea tar pits here in Los Angeles might magically resurrect themselves, and then you'll have to fight them off. So I know that's a bit tangential, but I think it's just wonderful that you talk about this aspect of differentiation. It's one of the biggest things that really has sat with me of separating your thoughts from your feelings and separating your thoughts and feelings from other people's. And oh my God, this has been something that seems like it is such a tangled mess of wires in my life mentally of, you know, it goes to this idea of if I separate my thoughts from my feelings, then what thoughts do I want to choose to believe are true? And what ones do I want to say, that's not actually true. And I'm not going to go on that roller coaster. That's been a challenge for me is what thoughts do I want to believe in? And what thoughts do I not want to believe in? Yeah. And I think it's just, it's so hard to see the reality sometimes Uh, (laughs) because we are very good at convincing ourselves about potential outcomes, you know? And I think that this past year has been difficult too, because the less access you have to other people, the more you imagine their disappointment in you or their frustration with you. And it becomes very easy to jump to the worst conclusion for sure. You know, but I, I think the other thing that's kind of become apparent with this kind of desire to to please others in the last year is just we are such social creatures. And I think the pandemic has proven that we will please others even if our health is at stake. You know, <laughs> therapy clients are or in my own life, you know, I observe people who, you know, someone they care about or someone they want to earn their respect does something, you know, they get too close to them or they are visiting and they want to use their bathroom, right? (laughs) Things a person told themselves that they weren't going to let other people do, that they conform or they, they let it slide, right? Simply because they don't want to create upsetness in the other person. And to me, that just illustrates how strongly relationship pressure affects what we do and the choices that we make like I said before, that's not good or bad. That's just sort of a piece of being human and recognizing that so many of our anxieties and so many of our choices are about trying to manage other people and their reactions to us. And I think that that's just such an anxious game. But, you know, I think especially this last year has kind of highlighted how much we do that. You talk about wanting to obviously be in community. You mentioned that. And one of the things that was a huge, you know, ding, 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 I resonate with this moment was a quote that you shared in one of your chapters about finding community. And it's a quote from uh, Jhumpa Lahiri that says, the essential dilemma of my life is my deep desire to belong and my suspicion of belonging. And that just, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I've been discussing so much, not only with Whitney here on the podcast, but with close friends of mine, how I have this seemingly diametric opposition in my heart that I miss getting together with friends at parties. I miss having, you know, these tight circles of gathering, say at my house. I I miss 
playing music shows or going to music shows. I miss these aspects of community. And at the same time, I'm starting to feel so much anxiety, sort of this idea of reintegrating into the world and having these type of experiences. And you mentioned something about avoidance of community is your anxiety wearing the mask of self-denial. And again, it's just like, damn, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if my, how the isolation and rumination in my head, especially during quarantine and COVID, I've spent so much time on my own. I'm very much an extroverted person. Whitney's the, the introvert in our, our partnership, or I'm definitely the extrovert. But I have felt myself pivoting into more of an introverted stance because when I'm even around even a semi-large group of people, even at the grocery store, I start to feel really, really anxious about it. So it's this really strange thing that you, you hit on the head in this chapter of, I want to be around people and I want belonging and I want community. But I find myself being really freaked out by it right now. Yeah. And I think that people are going to have to recognize that they're, they're going to have this larger degree of sensitivity that they didn't have before and that that's to be expected. That doesn't mean that anything is necessarily wrong, but that we will, you know, have to relearn how to manage ourselves um, in the presence of other people and how to see the reality of what life will be like six months from now, a year from now, instead of operating it as if, you know, things are the way they are now. And that's kind of a roller coaster to kind of go, for, you know, into pre-COVID times and then to take all these precautions and then to, to operate differently again. I think it takes a while for your brain to catch up. And, and you know, what I describe in, in the book as kind of this alarm system that we have and that we're going to have to tinker with it a little bit so that we can more accurately assess what's really scary and what's completely manageable. And that includes, you know, health stuff, safety stuff, but that also includes people's reactions to us and how we operate with other people. And to see that disappointing someone, disagreeing with them, having them not be happy with you in the moment or feeling like you're boring someone, you know, that those are all manageable things. And that being in the middle of it, I think, is the only way you learn how to to be calm and, and thoughtful and enjoy yourself. But I think that that's going to take some practice for a lot of people. I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because I've recently been reflecting on my people-pleasing tendencies. And when I acknowledge something about myself that isn't serving me, my way of handling it is to try to like get through it as quickly as possible. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a coping mechanism, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't like this. I, I need to fix this. And, and I'm very solution oriented in every element of, of my life. So my current internal project is how can I be less of a people pleaser in, in the ways that it isn't serving me, right? Like to your point, Kathleen, it's I'm somebody that if I'm offending someone, bothering someone, irritating them, whatever, not not making them happy, I feel very uncomfortable. In fact, <laughs> I had a moment a little while ago, I was at a grocery store and um, somebody called me and I needed to speak to them. And my, my instinct was, oh my gosh, they're not going to be able to hear me because I'm wearing a mask. And I pulled down my mask for a second to start to talk. And then in that moment, I'm like, oh no, I, I'm in a grocery store. I need to put my mask back on. And before I put my mask back on, there was an employee there that saw me and was like, hey, put your mask on. And I, I'm still like an hour later sitting here feeling like shame or something about that. Like, oh my gosh, I got caught without my mask on. This guy probably thinks I'm a horrible person. You know, it's like 
that's the way my brain has been working. And I, the more I'm aware of it, the more I realize that's like one of my forms of anxiety. It's not only trying to prevent those things and feeling anxious that I'm going to displease somebody, but then it's dealing with like those moments where I did something I wasn't supposed to do or I did something that bothered someone. I will carry that energy around with me for much longer than it actually serves me. Yeah, I think it is so I understand this so well, you know, just personally, you get a mean look from somebody, you get an email that feels a little awkward or strange, and it can throw off your entire day. It is fascinating (laughs) how one person's reaction can affect our mood and our functioning. I, I love the example you gave. And, um, you know, I don't, like I said before, it's not good or bad. It's just useful to recognize the power that, that other people have on our functioning. And to me, the goal is not to be a robot or to never be affected by it. But if you think of it as kind of a roller coaster and can you, can you sort of lower the steepness of the curve, you know, that maybe I get a, a scary email from my boss or a relative gives me a call and we kind of argue a little bit. And it makes me feel anxious or upset a little bit, but I'm still able to function that day and, and be responsible for myself and kind of do what I need to do to manage that anxiety. But I think it's just, it's something that everybody deals with. You know, I had a, a conversation with a client recently who they were talking about, you know, when you, re- and we're, we're not obviously going to restaurants now, but when you recommend a restaurant uh, to some friends or you take your family to a restaurant and you need to ask them about five times whether they like the food, right? That (laughs) how much we want to make sure everyone is happy with our choices. And we talked about, well, you know, that could be a goal for you this year to have a pleasant meal with people, even if they're not enjoying the food or to disappoint people on your path towards living the life you want to leave. I think that's a great goal to have and a really hard one. It's so relatable. I mean, that example too, Kathleen, because I'm that person that if I host a party or if I bring someone to the movies, for some reason that came to mind, like these times where like, yeah, I'm I'm creating an experience for someone or introducing something to someone. I really want to get feedback and I'm hoping that it's good feedback. And I also find myself having trouble enjoying experiences like that because if I hear that, like, or I find out somehow they signal to me that somebody is not enjoying something, I want to be able to fix it. Going back to what I said earlier, like, that's, I think, a coping mechanism for me is if I can just get the right feedback, then I can fix it and make that person happier soon enough. And that's a a relatively new realization for me. It's taken me a long time to get to that place. And that's why conversations like this are so incredibly helpful because It seems obvious to me now, but it wasn't obvious until I had some conversations that led up to that realization about myself. And now I have the opportunity to reflect on it and think like, okay, is it serving me to live that way or not? And to your point, Kathleen, it's not really about getting rid of it and never feeling anxious and never like exhibiting that behavior, but maybe it's minimizing it, reducing it, or like not putting so much emotional weight on it. Yeah, I think that's an excellent goal for anybody because I've never met a human. Maybe you'd have to be a sociopath or something, (laughs) but who isn't affected by those moments. But the thing is, you know, that's trying to manage other people, you know, and I think that stepping back and letting people be in charge of themselves, letting them say thank you or share what they think about the restaurant or the movie, you know, that's people tend to enjoy themselves more and they don't tend 
they tend to not like being asked, are you having fun? Is the food good? What do you think? Right? <laughs> that causes more anxiety, I think, uh, in the short term. But I, I think of that as a type of overfunctioning to try and manage the emotions and, and the thoughts of others. And, um, you know, we waste so much time and energy doing that. And I think, you know, just having the goal of letting other people be in charge of themselves is is a hard thing to do, but it's just so valuable in the long run. Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, just hearing you say that is really helpful to me. <laughs> and I think it, it stems out of like, was I feeling over controlled and then like using that pattern for myself? Like, oh, this is how you function in the world. You try to control people, you try to manage them, you know, and, and it, if you look at so much of uh, my life, it is about like leadership and management. And so it's like that aids me in some ways. But in other ways, it doesn't. I think mostly in the personal sense, like I, I've definitely irritated my fair share of people by asking them like, hey, are you liking this and, and wanting their feedback? Jason's probably one of them. But this leads me into something else that I remembered I wanted to speak with you about today, Kathleen, which is about pseudo self boosters. And we did a whole episode about this thanks to your amazing newsletter. And in that, we recognized that we didn't fully understand what pseudo self meant. In fact, in the episode, Jason asked, is that a euphemism for ego? And I would love to hear you talk more about like, what is the pseudo self and how does that play into the work that you do? Yeah, so this is very related to what we've just been talking about. For all the listeners, you know, this is all Bowen theory. This is the psychotherapy theory that I was trained in. and this guy, Dr. Murray Bowen, he was a psychiatrist, and he kind of had this theory that you couldn't really tell how mature a person was just by observing them. <laughs> that as humans, we are sort of masters at appearing more mature, less mature, calmer, more confident, more capable than we actually are, because we use praise from other people, acceptance from the group, a fancy job title, other kinds of status, getting a pat on the back from our boss. These are all external things that boost our functioning. And so that's sort of what he meant by pseudo self, that this is something that is changeable and malleable based on who is in the room, how people are reacting to you, how people treat you, all of the relationship stuff, right? And that what's sort of at the core, which is what he called sort of the solid self or the basic self was your actual functioning, you know, what you were able to do, what you actually believed in and valued. And that wasn't negotiable based on who's in the room or how people are treating you. And so pseudo self isn't a bad thing. But what I often find with my therapy clients, you know, I work in Washington, D.C., and Humans are pretty similar in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of people in D.C. who take a lot of pride um, and get a lot of pseudo self boost from their job title or the work that they're doing. You know, and I work with a lot of people who they lose their job or they get a boss who's terrible, you know, and all of a sudden they're depressed. They can't do work, you know, as well as they used to. And they, they recognize that their functioning has sort of been propped up by all of these external things. And they need to learn how to, they need to learn how to evaluate themselves objectively or as objectively as they can without relying on that praise or that approval, because they're not always going to get it. And I think the more that you can learn to do that, the better off you are. And I think that that goes back to kind of making that roller coaster less steep when you have a bad day, 
when you have a bad boss, when somebody sends you a, a mean email. So I think that's kind of the simplest definition of it. What comes up for me in you describing the pseudo self, Kathleen, is how many layers of conditioning that we have a chance to look at as adults. A mentor of mine once said that he believed most human beings were just children in adult bodies with technical educations. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, it just feels like there's a lot of conditioning and coping mechanisms and behavioral patterns that we co-opt as children for survival that we bring into adulthood that don't necessarily serve us anymore as trying to be functioning, mature, self-assertive adults. And when you talk about these, it, it makes me reflect on when Whitney brought up people pleasing. And I think about tendencies or ways of being that I adopted in childhood for some sense of survival. I had um, different aspects of trauma in my childhood. And now that I reflect on some of my behavioral patterns as an adult, I really remember and kind of look back and think, oh, that's why you adopted that behavior because you think you needed to do that to survive, whether that was as long as I'm the funniest person in the room and the most entertaining and mommy and daddy are loving me, then I'll never be abandoned. You know, There's a lot of different, I suppose, personal examples I could bring up. But in your work, do you find that, and this is maybe a sweeping generalization, but that a lot of these coping mechanisms or need for validation, attention, approval, significance are motivated by I suppose, certain childhood traumas or situations that people are not yet fully aware of or that they're trying to unravel that no longer serve them in adulthood. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, Bowen theory in particular is a family theory. And so our position in our families, the role that we play, how our parents interacted with us, how anxious they were about us, all of these things affect how we function as adults, right? And often, Families vary in their, first of all, their sensitivity to stress and dealing with challenges, right? Some families seem to do better than others. And we kind of learn from our families and from other people we interact with as kids, for sure, you know, how important is approval? How bad is it if you disagree with us or you believe something different than we do, right? (laughs) And if it's very bad to be different, if it's very important to please people, or if it could be opposite, it could be very good to be a rebel, right? We adopt these sort of different values and different thinking about relationships. You know, it absolutely has a has an influence. You know, I was going to, Whitney, when you were talking earlier, I was going to ask you if you were the oldest in your family or if you were an only child. (laughs) I am the oldest. Yeah. I mean, that's not atypical for an oldest to feel over responsible for others and to be sort of more keyed into other people's reactions. I think that's a natural position that a lot of people fall into. So it's not that it's just family, but I think that understanding how our families react to upsetness or anxiety in other humans plays a pretty big role. So first of all, I'm an only child. (laughs) And I think that one thing that I've observed in adulthood, that in the midst of this conversation was sort of a connection piece that I don't, I'm not sure I fully ever put together, was this tendency that I've observed as an adult to want to be a peacekeeper, so to speak. Whereas I realized at one point as an adult that not all of my friends were going to like each other or get along. You know, I have, I suppose, sort of these compartments of friend groups that are because of different interests or hobbies or my professional career or my family. 
And for a long time, I sort of had this belief system that everyone had to get along or moreover, everyone had to like each other. That was important to me. I want everyone to like each other. But as I've gotten older, I realize that people sometimes just don't like each other. I can love all of these people in my life and care for them deeply. But I've realized that I have taken on a role of trying to be the peacekeeper and try and make sure that everyone likes each other. And if I go back to my childhood and sort of the disillusion of my parents' relationship, I remember in that context being very young and thinking, I need to be the peacekeeper. I need to be the one keeping peace in the household. How can I dissolve the anger, the tension, the violence, and trying to do that as a child? And realizing as an adult to try and do that is kind of, it's crazy making for me because it's way too much to take on energetically to try and say like, oh, you know, is, is Mary getting along with Susie and is Susie get along with Amy and does Amy like Todd? And no, they don't like each other. Shit, how can I fix this? But realizing I don't have to fix it. But that's very, very much a carryover from childhood when thinking I have to keep the peace, I have to fix this, I have to make everything okay. And my God, is it so tiring to try and do that now? Yeah. And I think that that goes back to what we said earlier about, you know, that's not a good or a bad behavior. It's just a way that you learn to manage the tension for better or worse. And sometimes it works really well, sometimes it doesn't. But what is the cost of always assuming that position in your relationships? It's exhausting. (laughs) I'd imagine it's anxiety producing. You divert a lot of energy towards managing things you can't really manage and being able to kind of claim back some of that energy and also just sit with the uncomfortableness of people not liking each other is a great skill to have. Yeah, this comes up to Whitney, you might laugh at this one is when I have started dating a new person in my life and then family and friends want to weigh in on their assessment of that person and sort of the energetics of the romantic relationship. And how often I've noticed certain people in life being like, ah, I don't think they're right for you. And I don't think this is going to work and giving me all these reasons. And, And you kind of alluded to Kathleen, you know, having this mentality of, did you call it the base self? Is that how you referred to the terminology? Basic self. The basic self. It seems to me that there's sort of this responsibility of, I'm the one in the relationship. I'm the one making this decision. The people in my life are not responsible for this decision, and nor is it their job to take it on. It just, it feels like for some reason, that's one thing that I've noticed over and over again. For some reason, in my, my romantic relationships, that a lot of people want to comment and weigh in and give their perspective. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, we're ultimately the ones responsible for the decisions in our lives, right? And I don't know. I think that one thing Whitney and I've discussed is, when people provide unsolicited advice or weigh in on their opinion when I don't ask for it, that's a massive trigger for me. And I'm still getting better at learning how to respond to those moments rather than react with some kind of defensiveness. But for some reason, in a romantic context, it seems to be just something that comes up a lot for me. It's really, really interesting to observe that. Well, I think what has helped me, at least, is recognizing that that is an anxious response that other people have as well. That when you share news with them, when you share something going on in your life, that people will try to fix it or manage it or give advice. And that doesn't make them, it makes them annoying, right? But it doesn't make them a villain or it doesn't make them someone who thinks you're not capable. It just makes them an anxious person who worries and tries to manage others to keep things calm. And 
recognizing that that is a response a lot of people have, I think can help you sort of solidify that boundary and say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I think about it differently. Or I want to see if this works out or not. I think this is worth pursuing or I'm, I'm interested in being with this person right now. And I'll let you know if I, you know, I need some advice, but I'm doing okay. And I think that that's so easy to think of when you're not in the moment, right? (laughs) Because you do become defensive. But I think, you know, having phrases like that kind of in your arsenal to that aren't snippy or defensive, they're just saying, you know what, I've, I've got this. And people might not be happy about that. But I think people who are able to kind of respond calmly, you know, have a better chance of the other person hearing them. One thing that comes up a lot in our conversations in our work, Kathleen, is the role of social media and having access to the thoughts, opinions, comments, remarks, emails, DMs of millions of people around the world that I suppose one part of our brains might still be wired for this more intimate sort of tribal situation where not so long ago in human history, we had this container of a very small group of people that we cohabitated with. Maybe we didn't know anyone more than, I don't know, 20, 30 miles away from the village or the town or the city where we grew up and lived in and generations of our families did. And now it's really interesting to see what social media and social media relationships are doing to mental health and our sense of self. And I'm curious in your line of work, obviously, as a clinician, as an author, as someone who is on social media and has a public presence, first of all, that's been like for you to manage, especially when you get perhaps, I don't know if I want to label them as negative comments, let's call them critical comments, or in general, how you think it would be beneficial for human beings to navigate this brave new world, because I don't think we're quite used to it yet. It still feels to me very much like the Wild West. And that our brains haven't necessarily caught up to the deluge of information and comments and relationships that we are bombarded with and feel we need to manage every day. It's kind of a long-winded question, but I'm curious what your opinion is on how you interact with social media and your personal and professional life. And I suppose what you've seen in your clinical work of how other people are struggling with handling this in their day-to-day lives. One thing I always talk about with my therapy clients is, have you thought about what it looks like to thoughtfully engage with the internet, social media, your phone, etc. And if you don't have a working definition of that, that you're sort of striving for, your anxiety is always going to run the show. And I don't know of any person who's ever signed up for (laughs) Instagram or Facebook and asked themselves, how do I thoughtfully engage with this platform, right? What, what's the right amount of time? Why am I using this? How would I know if I were getting something positive out of it? But I think those are all useful questions to kind of check in with yourself about from time to time. You know, for me personally, the, the barometer I use is what we talked about earlier with that, that bounce back time of how quickly I can recover after I get a mean tweet or a mean email. (laughs) And I have a long way to go, but I have noticed progress. You know, I'm thinking of one example. This isn't social media, but I think it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, I send out a newsletter every now and then, and it's free. And at the end, I always say, here's, you know, if you're interested in more, here's my book, you can buy it. And I got an email from this guy who was saying, you're a terrible person. How dare you try and profit off of people's suffering? (laughs) You know, it was just, it was wild. You know, I was able to read that. And of course, you know, it made me feel not great at first. But then I thought, wow, people are really anxious right now. 
And I could just sort of see this guy's reactivity as just a sign of kind of what was going on. And I was able to kind of take it less personally. And I think, you know, that objectivity isn't always easy to access, but just recognizing and seeing people's behaviors, like I said before, as anxious responses, and then asking myself, well, what do I think is my best way to respond? And again, it goes back to that reacting versus responding. And sometimes I think that means not replying. Sometimes it means I need to share my thinking a little bit more with this person. It never usually means a snappy comeback or (laughs) hurling insults at somebody. But focusing on my end of it and not trying to manage the other person or make them like me, I think is the only response. But that, you know, that goes back to I'm never going to be a robot, that I'm always going to feel that anxious reaction because someone doesn't like me, someone doesn't approve of me. But uh, I think it's great practice. And if I can think of that as, oh, here's another opportunity for me to manage my anxiety and to get back focused on what I think is going to be a good day or what I need to do in the situation. You know, it sounds terrible, but I don't know any other way to get better at it than to just be in the middle of it. That's such a great line. I don't know how any other way to get out of it than be in the middle of it. And I feel like that might be one of our quotables for this episode. (laughs) You know, this topic is really hits close to home for me and Jason. And we actually did it at least one episode, I think two, maybe right at the top of my head, discussing our responses to really intense emails or messages we've received. And a third just came to mind. So this has come up a lot in our podcast. And it's so true because you have to take each of them one at a time. And sometimes they really catch me off guard with how they affect me. And uh, I love that perspective of recognizing that this is an anxious time for us collectively, but really trying to do our best to understand where this person may be coming from. In many cases, they may just be struggling or suffering and lashing out for whatever reason. They're triggered by something we said. And I think it's fascinating for me because I don't tend to react that way publicly or directly to somebody. That's not how I behave. And it's hard for me to understand and relate to other people who write cruel comments online, who send emails that you know are kind of harsh or leave a bad review. As again, we've talked about a number of times on this show. I just... I don't know, understand that way of living. And I think that that's part of what makes it really challenging. And we talked about recently how when we don't understand someone, we have the tendency to judge them a lot and be like, wow, how could this person do this? And then we start to get into this this self-righteous place of like, well, I would never behave that way. So I must be in the right and they must be in the wrong. And that's always an interesting place to catch myself in. It's like, wait a second. Just because I don't do the thing that they're doing doesn't mean that that makes me better than them. And that means that this person is a bad person. And I think it's an interesting kind of knee jerk reaction to have that. And we've also talked about like how people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I mean, the truth is, we might not remember that we've behaved that way, but perhaps we have in the past. And it's a very human reaction to respond to somebody in in a harsh way without realizing that maybe it's a little uncalled for and and misdirected. Yeah. And I I think it's super corny, but I think nobody has ever gotten more mature because someone praised them. 
right? Wow. We get, you know, we get mature. We grow up in those moments where somebody is coming at us with their immaturity and we choose to go to that level and respond in that same way or we choose to behave the way we'd like to behave. And that's that differentiation piece, you know, (laughs) because I think it's when people are immature and reactive um, and mean, it's a pretty good excuse to behave the same way. And, you know, but I think people who are able to take on the mindset of instead of saying, oh, gosh, another person's upset with me instead saying, oh, great, you know, here's another opportunity for me to kind of work my way through this and stay above it and be thoughtful. And maybe the next time I can laugh at it or I can just say, okay, yeah, next email, next, (laughs) next comment, next review. Or I can ask myself, is there anything useful in this feedback or not? And if you say no, then okay, I'll just, I'll just move on here. But you know, those are the, the growth edges. Those are the moments. And I think that even small progress makes such a huge difference. Absolutely. Another thing that came up while Jason brought up this question around anxiety around social media is something I started to experience recently. And I'm I'm curious, Kathleen, if you've noticed this with other clients or if I'm kind of on on the extreme end of a spectrum here. I've struggled with sleepwalking and sleep talking for much of my life. And it comes out in interesting times. And people often ask me like, oh, do you think you're feeling extra anxious? Is that why that happened this evening, right? Because I, I can never predict it. And sometimes I'll do some crazy behavior in the middle of the night. And it seems obvious that it it would be related to anxiety. Like I must be really stressed. I must feel anxious. I must be processing something. But it, it's not super clear to me. And I've noticed recently it's very tied to social media. In fact, very specifically, I've been having sleepwalking episodes of me thinking that I didn't turn off live video or something and like I'm sleeping and live on whatever platform and I'll like wake up in the middle of light, night like panicked like oh my gosh, like I'm live right now and everyone's seeing me sleep or like I need to be doing something like I'm supposed to be in a live meeting or something on social media and I'm late or I'm in the middle. Like It's just like this weird, even hard to say out loud. And it's all related to social media. And it's been really intense for me recently. And I've been trying to like figure out how to manage it and all simultaneously wondering how many people are carrying their feelings about social media, the pressure or the stress, the anxiety of social media into their sleep with them. And because so many people struggle with sleep issues, people have trouble falling asleep, people have trouble staying asleep, maybe other people exhibit sleepwalking or talking like I do. And maybe it's like a collective anxiousness that's happening from this go, go, go kind of hustling side of social media. That would be a fascinating thing to track, Whitney, (laughs) to see if over time, you felt less pressured or less sensitive to how you engage with it, whether that made a difference in your sleep habits. I mean, it would not surprise me if it did. Yeah. And I mean, it's getting to the point where I have to track it because, you know, the other night, I haven't even told you this, Jason, but for anyone who's interested in sleepwalking, people tend to want to hear these stories. (laughs) The other night, I woke up at somewhere between like 2 and 4 a.m. 
And I grabbed my phone because I thought that I was like supposed to be on a live clubhouse specifically as an app that we've been using recently, which is all live audio. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be on clubhouse right now. And I grabbed my phone and jumped out of bed. And because I was asleep, or at least partially asleep, I slipped and hurt myself. (laughs) And it was a minor injury, but I was like, okay, like this is not good. Like clearly there's some level of disturbance happening that's causing my body to react in this way. And I could really injure myself. And this isn't the first time I've injured myself through sleepwalking. And so that's usually my cue that I need to shift something and I have to like change up my routine and become more thoughtful. But what I've noticed, Kathleen, is just like anything else, it's not like I can just flip a switch and turn off anxiety. It's it's a process. It's something I have to be very intentional about. I have to experiment with. I have to track it to your point. And I'm almost grateful for that, though, because within my personal experiences through this, I feel like I can also learn more about how to support others that might be feeling a lot of anxiety through social media, too. You know, I think part of the challenge is that just with technology, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book, you know, that back in the day, you know, if somebody wanted to make you anxious, they had to like come over to your house, right? (laughs) But now I can text someone or post something on my social media, and I have this immense power of affecting other people's emotions, right? And when that's a a part of your day, sort of 24-7, there's no real respite from that. And, you know, I think that then part of the challenge is how do I, how do I thoughtfully engage with it? But how how do I also recognize that, you know, I am influenced by other people. uh, And that relationship pressure is still there, even if I'm in my house by myself. And, you know, I don't think that people have given a lot of thought to that, you know, um, there's this famous quote by a biologist, E.O. Wilson, I'm going to butcher it, But he said something like, we have these sort of ancient emotions or primordial emotions and um, godlike technology, and that (laughs) the combination of the two, it, it can be quite dangerous. That hits so hard. It feels like we have these things at our behest now, and yet we are still reacting in such primitive ways. And it's fascinating It's just fascinating to think about what technology is going to do to us. I mean, as a tangent, you know, there's certain theories. Yuval Harari talks about Homo Deus and sort of this merging of technology and humanity. And some people refer to it as the singularity where humanity and technology becomes one. And, you know, I get anxious sometimes thinking about AI. And (laughs) I don't, it's just interesting you hit that, Kathleen, because I find myself having reactivity to technology. It's almost really like a love-hate relationship. Whereas in this pandemic, I have felt a lot of gratitude for things like FaceTime and Zoom and the ability to keep in touch with my family who's you know 2,500 miles away. And I've only really had a lot of contact with people through these digital mediums. But at the same time, feeling like I'm teetering on a line of addiction to it, that my lifeline to stay in connection with the people I love has sometimes given way to seeking out these dopamine hits through social media, through being on Zoom calls, through taking FaceTime calls all the day. And I'm still working out how to responsibly manage the possibility of being addicted to these devices whilst acknowledging 
I have a deep desire to stay connected with the people that I love. It's a conflict for me because I don't want to be addicted to devices, but I do want to stay connected to the people I care about. It's tough. It's a daily challenge, to be honest. It is a challenge, you know, especially when they're designed to have you be addicted. And, you know, and is there a thoughtful way to beat the algorithm or do you just throw your hands up and say, I can't, I can't do this. I think that's something that sort of has yet to be determined. But, you know, I look, I think of people in my own life and I think that uh, there are examples. There are people I know who engage with technology, their phones, social media thoughtfully. I think that there are examples of it. And whether that's having conversations with those people or just observing their behaviors and how they use them and seeing if you can kind of glean some from wisdom from that. So I'm hopeful. I feel like it can be done, but I think it, it becomes more, more challenging every year as the, the technology gets more complex. Yeah, for sure. And, and that kind of reminds me of something I saw on TikTok today that I thought was really fascinating. <laughs> this girl went and made a video about how she's going to stop using social media for the next three months so that she can focus on working on herself. And it's the only video she has in her account. It has received like 6 million views and she now has a million followers because everybody is waiting to see what happens when she comes back from social media and what her life is like after taking that break. And I just thought, wow, like that's so fascinating, you know, like, and, and it seems like she means it. Like it's, she said, after I post this video, I'm deleting TikTok, not meaning deleting her account, but like keeping her account up so that she can come back to it, but deleting it from her phone so that she's not going to use it. And it just was really neat because she looks like she's a, in her 20s and maybe even her teens, like young. And she's setting this example for people like, hey, like you can engage thoughtfully with social media and or you can not use it at all and then just go focus on your life offline. And I, I think it's important to see more messages like that because social media has just dominated so much of our lives personally and professionally. It feels like we can't disconnect from it sometimes. Yeah, you know, I think. Whatever you choose to do, can you ask yourself, is it a reactive position or a thoughtful one? Because I think there's a thoughtful way to disconnect and say, hey, I'm going to take a break. I want to see what I can do with myself. And it sounds like that's what this young woman is doing. But I think the opposite of that is a reactive one and say, forget this. I'm deleting all my apps. <laughs> people, I talk to a lot of young people about dating with the <laughs> same issues come up, right? Do I use dating apps? Do I not? And Often, I think that that I talk about this in the book, you know, I call that attacking the problem, just saying, okay, well, it feels good in the moment to just get rid of all this stuff. And that doesn't necessarily change the way you behave and the way you interact with other people. That's just a way to kind of calm you down temporarily. And sometimes it means you need to go back and engage and think a little bit differently if it, you want it to be a part of your life or you have this, this goal for yourself, whether it's professionally or, or personally. You know, so to me, it's not necessarily what you're doing, but how you come at the decision. One thing that I want to talk about, Kathleen, is your your encouragement to play the long game with all of this. And I think that's so refreshing. And one thing, again, that was another eye opener in your book was that as we begin to practice being more self-responsible, that our anxiety may increase. And I thought, oh, shit, that's relatable in the sense of 
I'm in therapy. I have a great therapist and, and I'm working on myself right now. And there are things coming up where I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to practice certain things to be more responsible. And some of it fits the framework in, in what your book is talking about of being a more mature person. And I have had so much anxiety around speaking up and asserting myself and being more self-responsible. And it was really a moment in your book where I'm like, right, it doesn't mean that I'm going to practice this for a week or two weeks, and then it's magically, my anxiety is magically going to go away. And so this idea of playing the long game, I guess I just want to, I want to crack that nut open a little bit because I think we're in a society that encourages such quick fixes, whether that's, and I'm not throwing pharmaceutical drugs under the bus, but as an example, just take this pill, just go to this weekend course, just work with this guru, just read this one book. And this thing that you have been trying to avoid or you hate about yourself or you're not going to deal with is just going to vanish. But in your position, it's like, no, we need to look at the long arc of working on oneself and being more self-responsible. And I just think, first of all, it's wonderful. And I'd love for you to speak on it for a moment or two. Well, I think, you know, the entire system is kind of rigged against it. You know, in, <laughs> insurance companies don't like it. You know, they want people in and out in eight sessions and be, quote, cured, right? And people, when you're upset, when you're distressed, when you have a crisis, right, of course, you want to solve it as quickly as possible. But to me, it's such a relief to know that you've got your whole life to work on this stuff and that small changes make a huge difference. You know, to, I think of myself personally. I'm an only child and I was sort of raised to kind of be over responsible for people and to direct others. And I was, I definitely did that work with family members and others for a long time. And as I began to learn about Bowen theory, I began to see that and I began to step back very, very slowly and failed a lot of times at it. <laughs> but, you know, you know, 10 years, 15 years after the fact, being able to look back and say, my God, how did I ever live that way? And I don't think I'm a particularly mature or enlightened person, <laughs> quite the opposite. But I am able to see how paying attention to it and observing it and being curious about it and trying to do something differently, maybe 10% of the time, it adds up. And also being able to talk to other people who've been working on themselves in their relationships and are not so hard on themselves and can find some humor in it, I think just is a huge relief. and. You know, that doesn't mean you need to pay for expensive therapy for 30 years. I think it just needs to be, means you need to keep being curious about yourself and use the part of your brain that solves problems and asks questions instead of the part that's just freaking out all the time or assuming the worst. And so I think some, for a lot of people, that does mean going to therapy. But I think for a lot of people, you know, it's just the practice of kind of being a researcher of yourself and observe how you interact with other, especially with other people in those relationships. And, you know, I think that that curiosity is contagious and it can make a big difference in the long run. So to me, that's sort of what it means to play the long game. One comment you made, Kathleen, that brought me some ease when is when you said, I'm not a particularly mature person. <laughs> and I think one thing that Whitney and I have talked about is that we have sort of, both of us have this sort of, it's not a secret because we've talked about it, but it's this dream that we've had of maybe we just both want to become therapists. And we have a couple of close friends that are, are wonderful therapists and you're here with us today. And it's something that I have thought about holding myself back from the idea of pursuing that because 
I have all these psychoses I'm working through and, and I'm this anxious person and I'm this depressed person and I'm working through all of my bullshit and my trauma and my belief systems. And I think in some ways is, ways I've used that as an excuse to maybe not even investigate the idea of going and getting my master's or my doctorate and, and becoming a therapist because it does interest me and as well it does Whitney. And I'm curious if that ever comes up for you, Whitney, but sometimes I feel like how am I going to help anyone when I'm so screwed up? And it's a really judgmental thing to say about myself. But I just feel like that that innocuous little comment you shared, Kathleen, was like, oh, yeah, Kathleen doesn't have it fully together, too. That's a good reminder. She's a human, too. And she's doing great work in helping people and supporting people. And I don't know. I just I felt the need to just thank you for that comment and, and for being so so real with that, because it's made me reflect on how I've held myself back from potentially pursuing this new career field, because I'm like, you can't do that. You're too screwed up. Well, I think therapists have a natural curiosity. And if you're curious about yourself and you're curious about other people, I think that's the mindset that counts. You guys mentioned the all the, the lists in my newsletter you think that are great because they're so relatable. You know, well, those are easy for me to make because I just asked myself, what did I do this week <laughs> that I wasn't proud of? You know, I'm using myself as the example most of the time. But I'm able to kind of be objective about it and not be so hard on myself about it. And, you know, that's what makes the difference. It's not so much the my behavior as it is my reaction to it or my response to it. So, you know, I think a lot a lot of people are drawn to the helping professions or to the mental health field because they they feel like they've had some challenges in the past, but they want to keep talking about it. And they don't like small talk very much. <laughs> they want to get right to the heart of things. Because they have that curiosity. Yeah, I can dig it. And, you know, who knows, maybe it will be something that Whitney and I decide to dig in a little bit more. As, as I mentioned, we have some really great close friends that are, are specialized in different forms of psychotherapy. And it's something that whether we decide to per pursue it career-wise or not, it's always going to be such a, a fundamental part, I think, of this podcast here. And Kathleen, it's just been a fantastic and wonderful exploration with you. And for the listener, if you are Wanting to take a deeper dive into Kathleen's wonderful work, we have mentioned her phenomenal book, Everything Isn't Terrible. It's something that I am just so joyful with because you have so many great references to the Star Wars prequels, and you mentioned Point Break and Keanu Reeves, and it's written with such a lighthearted approach that I feel like I'm sitting down with a friend who speaks my language. So for you, dear listener, if you enjoy someone who goes deep into the psychology of anxiety and securities and calming down and also has some killer pop culture references, you're going to dig this book. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode sponsored by Simply Codes. Their tool is one of the easiest ways to save money when you make your next online purchase. All you have to do is visit simplycodes.com slash wellevator and install the extension on your web browser and or your Apple devices. Next time you visit a store's website, click the Simply Codes logo to see the best deals available, then copy and paste that code into the discount section at checkout. We'd love to hear what you save on next, so send us a message to share the best deal you found with Simply Codes. Again, that's simplycodes.com slash Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. We will link to that book in the show notes for this episode at our website. It's wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section. It will take you to the transcript in the show notes for this episode, where we will have a link to Kathleen's website, her book, and all of the references that we mentioned in this episode for you to continue your life experiments in mental health, emotional wellness, 
and becoming a more self-aware human being. So Kathleen, we just appreciate you getting deep with us and sharing more of your story and your work. And it's been such a pleasure having you. It's been months and months in the making. And so I feel a deep sense of satisfaction just having you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you both. It's been great. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 